it is hard to, um, to sing the, the lyrics of the song we just sang and not um, be pleasantly lured into a moment of reflection and awe and wonder and deep appreciation as to what Jesus has done for us. It is hard to move on when you think about the goodness of Jesus and all that he has done for us. There be those of you here who might have been pulled out of your cities kicking and screaming by a family member to be here. And I want to thank you for allowing yourself to be kicked and screamed. And among you, there may be those that look at this Christianity stuff and perhaps you've moved on past it, perhaps you have dismissed it, perhaps you have questions that have yet to be answered. All I can do for you is this. I witness to a truth that says that there is a God who has made all things. This God is benevolent. This God is full of love. This God is holy in all his ways. And the record says that he created us in his image and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that he destined us to enjoy perfect communion with him. The record says, however, that we sinned against him. That means we rebelled against him. That means instead of honoring him as God, we were tempted by pride to believe that we could be gods ourselves and do life our own way. Common sense now says that this benevolent and perfect God should do away with us. But now you see why I'm so moved and can hardly move towards my sermon. Because this God refused to move away from us and instead ran towards us. Everything on paper said, cancel it, it's over, and let me move on. But Grace said, I'll send my own son to leave paradise and clothe himself in flesh and humble himself to be subjected to realities that you and I deal with, like pain and shame and embarrassment and fear and everything else. And he does this for 33 years of flawless sinlessness and perfection. And as if that were not enough, he then says, for a debt that was ours to pay, I will take it upon myself and I will allow myself to be tortured and beaten and ridiculed and spit upon. And my Bible says that he hung on the cross faithfully for sinners who had turned their back on him. And for the first moment in all history, the Trinity experiences disconnection. As the father turns his back on the sins of the world and Jesus feels that rejection. And he says, Lord, why have you forsaken me? He went through that for me and for you. And my Bible says, John 19, something happened. And I hope it will encourage you. Jesus said, it is finished. And that's the part I don't get. I believe it, but I don't get it. The fact that my junk that I've done. My junk that I'm still doing, my junk that I have yet to do has been washed away by the shed blood of Christ. So he hung his head and died. And three days later, the world changed and breath re-entered his body. 
and he rose from the grave. And now he says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Should my sermon fail, may this presentation of the gospel not. There is a God-shaped hole in your heart that only Jesus Christ can fill. And I beg you, and I beg you to consider this Jesus and to consider who he is and what he wants to do in your life and become followers of the way. Christianity is not a guarantee of perfection until the end. It's simply a guarantee that someone perfect will now walk with you for all eternity. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And should my sermon fail, may this presentation of the gospel not. I'm sorry, because I need to get to this sermon. <laughs> but there are some of you that don't know him. And I want to beg you to consider making Jesus the Lord of your life. Amen? Amen. All right. You're dismissed. Good night. No, I'm kidding. Oh, man. Adrian, why'd you do that song? Man, Lord Jesus. God is good, and uh, sometimes it bees that way. Um, it's good to be with you yet, yet another night, Mount Hermon. I thank God for the privilege you've given me again uh, to present uh, this glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a joy and what a mile marker moment for me and my family that we get to be here. Uh, this group shall not be together again until we are together again in glory. And may we get there someday and tell great stories as to what God did in and through us. Hey, listen, um, I want to talk to you tonight about forgiveness. L let, me, let me edit that. The last thing I want to talk to you about <laughs> is forgiveness. So, so just hear, hear, hear my preacher's lament. Even I am not excited for this conversation. <laughs> that really whet your appetite, didn't it, right? I mean, no, you never heard anyone say, girl, come to my church this weekend. They talking about forgiveness, girl. You ain't never heard that one. So it's not one of those conversations that, that, that we're striven to kind of listen to, right? It's just, it's just not a thing. But I think what we talk about tonight, for the mature Christian, I think is one of the most important conversations we'll ever have together. This is not a polished sermon tonight, by the way. It's just, I'm going to be a, a mess trying to get through it, to be honest with you. Um, I would argue, it's just me, I would argue that one of the enemy's last greatest attacks for the mature Christian is to get you to hold on to non-forgiveness. Ricky, where's your data? <laughs> none, none, I just... For the mature Christian, I think that one of the last strongholds that has the most subtle and stealthy influence in the mature believer's heart is that of anger and bitterness and non-forgiveness. Here's the weird thing. is because you can kind of keep on going through the motions of life and still have a 1,000-pound anchor called un unforgiveness in your heart. And it's, and it's subtle and it's stealthy. And I'm just here to testify that if I'm not careful, it gets me all the time. I'm going to be a little vulnerable with you tonight, and we're strangers, which is awkward, but it is what it is. Uh, I told you about Southwest Church and what God's doing there and, and how amazing it is. We have started to use the word revival around there. 1,200 people get saved. That means dozens every weekend, like, coming to faith. We're talking about people who never heard the name of Jesus. It's, it's been amazing. 
So there's this wondrous fruit that's happening in our lives. Me and April have just been astounded as to what God has been doing. Uh, But what's been significant, though, is that at the same time there's been unbelievable fruit in ministry, there's also been unbelievable attacks in ministry as well. We've gone through hardships that make no sense. It's just like, what is going on here? And you can't help but relegate it to the fact that God is doing something and Satan read our newspaper and is doing everything he can to come against what God wants to do. Uh, me and my wife, a couple of months ago, we're in our backyard. We have a, a hot tub, and we were just hanging out in the hot tub, which is, you know, awesome. That's all another story. Anyways, me and my wife are together, <laughs> and we're just reflecting on what's happened this last year. And I'll never forget what my wife said. She said, I've never been in a season of ministry that is so fruitful and at the same time so attacked. And then it resonated deeply with us that this is how the Bible reads. All of God's people fruitful, but attacked. So the question you may be asking is, what did the attacks look like? We were tempted to not give forgiveness to people. Uh, Several months ago, we were renting a place, building a house, and uh, we had a landlord, and um, we got into this dispute. And let me just tell you right now, we were right. (laughs) Oh, you were supposed to say amen. Amen. We, 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 we were right, and we got to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and we think it's over, and two months later, I get a big old pamphlet in the mail and get served with a court order because she's suing me, and guess when the court date was? The Monday morning of Easter week, and let me be honest with you, okay? God's still working on my holiness, So my prayer was not, God, help me to show her gentleness. (laughs) I'm going to bring you into my prayer. God, get her in the name of Jesus. (laughs) And we struggled with that thing. We struggled. And finally, God spoke to my wife and said, you need to lay down your rights. And the scripture says, why not suffer wrong? And we called her and said, let's just get this behind us. And it cost $6,000 to be right. And then we get into this contention with this particular block of leaders at the church. And we were right. (laughs) But we're trying to be gracious with our brothers, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the same thing comes back. Why not suffer wrong and lay your rights down for the sake of the unity of the brothers and sisters? And what I want you to know is that the only thing that was trying to get in the way of continued fruit and ministry at our church was hours and days and weeks where our hearts were struggling to forgive. Um, I want to ask you a question. How are you doing at forgiveness? I didn't ask you what the Bible says. So don't go Sunday school on me. Some of you just thought to yourself, well, the Bible says do unto others. No, I didn't ask you what the Bible says. How are you doing with what the Bible says? Has somebody wronged you? How are you doing with that? Has somebody abused you? Are you walking in forgiveness or walking in bitterness and unforgiveness? Has someone cheated on you? Has someone betrayed you? How are you doing with that? Has someone lied on you? Has someone gossiped on you? Has someone caused grievous injustices for you? How are you doing with that? Did someone fail to keep their word with you? How are you doing with that? Um, 
the whole question, how to do forgiveness, is at the heart of the passage I want to read to you tonight in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. The disciple Peter essentially here is basically asking Jesus the question, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive until I can kind of move on with my life? And in so doing, you got to get this now. And in so doing, Peter is here kind of representing to us what's wrong with how we look at forgiveness. It's what I call the religious approach to forgiveness. But Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to juxtapose religious forgiveness with what I like to call gospel forgiveness. And Jesus is going to give them a story about this king with these these servants who settles accounts and he gives them this great mercy, implying that this is now how you and I are supposed to live. And in so doing, he gives us a wonderful what to do about forgiveness. Everyone look in this way. Tonight is about you being free. The problem with forgiveness is that most of, it, most of us just look at forgiveness as something we give to others. The Bible teaches that forgiveness is not just something I give to you, but at the same time, it's something I give to me. I license myself to enjoy the freedom that only Christ can give. And that's what I want to have a conversation with you about tonight. Listen, this is a heavy one. We'll have fun tomorrow but I want you to get this in Jesus' name. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. If you have it, say, here we go. Here we go. The Bible says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In some of your King James Bible, it says 70 times seven. We all know the King James Bible is the true Bible. Verse 23 says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Everybody say, wow, that's a whole lot. lot. Verse 25, it says, he could not pay. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, look at it. And out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28 says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now everybody say, man, that ain't nothing. Thank you for saying ain't. I appreciate that. (laughs) And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. I have read from the greatest book ever written. And I bear witness this day that all of its words are true. Amen? Amen. Amen. What to do about forgiveness. Get this in your spirit. 
and ask the Holy Spirit to press it into your spirit when you hear it. If you want to get forgiveness in the gospel, you have to forgive like a child. You have to forgive like a child. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. I encourage you to start praying a prayer that I promise will radically change your journey with Jesus. Here it is. Jesus, help me to see forgiveness the way a child does. Jesus, help me to see forgiveness the way a child does. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. But essentially, we're in Matthew chapter 18. And friends, all you need to know about Matthew chapter 18 is that Matthew chapter 18 is all about navigating relationships, particularly when relationships go wrong. Matthew chapter 18, hear it, is all about navigating relationships, particularly when relationships go wrong. Translation, Matthew 18, for the Christian is one of your best friends. Because how many of us can testify yes and amen that I'm in some relationships and sometimes these relationships go wrong. Maybe you can't say amen because that go wrong is right next to you right now, but that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. It's all about navigating relationships, particularly when relationships go wrong. You can't help but see this when you even peruse through Matthew chapter 18. So in verse 7, Jesus says, within the context of our relationships, you should be careful not to tempt your brother or your sister uh, to sin. He kind of expounds upon the point in verse 15 when Jesus says, when sin goes down in relationships, hear it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, watch this now, compels me in the case point of sin not to move away from that person, but to rather in grace move towards that person. Did you hear that? The gospel of Jesus Christ, hear it, compels me in the case point of sin not to move away from that person, but rather in grace, pursue that person in grace and love. This is what the gospel says. Now, so emphatic is Jesus about this point that he underscores how serious he is about this gospel call when he says in verse 20 that with any two or three of you kind of people, that move towards people when sin happens and not away from them. That's the thrust of Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Jesus says, if any two or three of you gather in my name, he says, I'll be with you in the midst of them. Translation, if you pursue others instead of moving from others, Jesus says, my presence will be with you. Translation, I will sign off on the whole ordeal. I will back you up. Now, in the old church, we've been, misinter- we've been misinterpreting that passage for thousands of years, where two or three are gathered in my name. In the old church, we used this for that old program where we thought 100 people were going to show up and only three people showed up. <laughs> and we'd look around at each other, and that old preacher would say, well, where two or three are gathered together in his name. And then we'd license ourselves to continue having, having this terrible worship service, Right? Jesus is not talking about terrible worship services. He's talking about the kind of people that obey the gospel calling when sin happens and move towards people and not away from them. Jesus says, I will have their back. But the whole point I'm trying to make, we're going to stay in the classroom for a couple more minutes. I promise we're going to church. But the whole point I'm trying to make is that Matthew 18 is all about navigating relationships, particularly when relationships go wrong. So now, if the gospel calls me to move towards people, not away from them. The question is, how then do I do that? The biblical construct, okay, of how this happens is embedded right here in chapter 18, verse 3. In fact, my hermeneutical argument is that verse 3 is the pendulum swing upon which everything in Matthew chapter 18 hinges upon. The idea is that none of chapter 18 makes sense to you until you first reckon with verse 3. 
Because in verse 3, Jesus is saying, you need to pray this prayer that your heart becomes like a child's heart. Because Jesus is basically saying in chapter 18, verse 3, if you're going to get forgiveness, if you're going to get relationships, if you're going to get reconciliation, your heart has to become like that of a child. Now, drop a pin there. I promise I'll come back with it now. But again, what you need to know about Matthew chapter 18 is that they're walking along the way towards Jerusalem here. And the disciples are kind of lodged in this debate that they were often lodged in as to who was going to be great in the kingdom of God. The disciples were always jockeying for a position with Jesus. They really thought he was going to be this Roman beat upper. He, they really thought he was going to be this king that was going to set up his kingdom right then and there. They thought it was more of a tangible thing that they could kind of experience right then and there. And so they were always lobbying for position. And so they're in this argument as to what greatness is. And in Matthew 18, Jesus completely destroys their paradigm when he says, if you're going to get kingdom living, if you're going to get kingdom position, I don't need you to act like a grown-up. I need you to operate like a kid. And you need to know to the ancient mindset, when someone says to be like a kid, it was probably one of the most offensive things that you could ever say to somebody. Jesus says, if you're going to get gospel livelihood, you got to be a kid. So this is what he's saying. Gospel greatness, namely forgiveness, is marked by a childlike heart. So let's look at verse 3. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn, everybody say turn, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in that uh, verse, verse 3, underline that word turn. Uh, the New Testament is originally written in a language called Greek. In the Greek, that English word turn is the Greek word strepho. Strepho is used synonymously with the word metamorphosis in the Greek New Testament. Metamorphosis is the idea of whole and entire and complete transformation. In other words, Jesus here is not saying adjust. Jesus is saying transform. When you hear strepho, you need to think Optimus Prime and Transformers. Jesus is saying, move from one way of doing things to an entirely new and whole way. And that's our problem. Because too many of us look at the Christian experience as if Jesus came along to make a new and improve you. That is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus didn't come along to adjust you and update you and give a new program to you. No, baby girl. When Jesus saved you, he threw out the old you and he made a complete new person in his place. The gospel is not adjustment. The gospel is replacement. Ricky, give me some Bible. I'm glad you asked. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul said, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Translation, it ain't you no more, girl. It's the new you. It ain't you no more, dude. It's the new you. And you need to feel this because something happens when people grieve us and when people cause us injustice and when people offend us with sin. We think all of a sudden now that we get to tap back into the world's way of doing things instead of this gospel way of doing things. But you got to remember that the gospel calls us to be entirely new, which means forgiveness is only going to work if I operate in the new way that God has died and risen again for me to be. Okay? This is what I want you to hear. You'll never do forgiveness well if you approach it like a Christian adult. You can only do forgiveness well if you approach it like a, like a Christian child, okay? So what Jesus is teaching here, stay with the classroom for a few minutes, I promise I'm going to church. What Jesus here is teaching is that concerning forgiveness, you got to be like a kid. Why? Here it is. Children are perfectly illogical and irrational beings. And everybody said... 
I got a two-year-old who literally believes he's Captain America. Like he, he wore this mask, he got a Captain America mask, and, and he's got on the suit and all this kind of stuff. And for two days, he refused to answer to his name. Every time we would say Grant, he would say, I'm Captain America. Like he literally believes he's Captain America. The other kid, the five-year-old, I remember one day he's got a whole bunch of coins. He's got a handful of pennies. And I'm trying to say, hey, buddy, I got some quarters for you. He starts crying and ticking me off and throwing the quarters back at me because he's convinced pennies are worth more. They are completely illogical and irrational beings. (laughs) So Jesus says, if you're going to get forgiveness, you better pray and become like a kid real quick. Because at the end of the day, the problem with grown-ups is that we are logical, most of us. We are logical. We are rational. Ricky, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say for the average adult, when you steal against me, okay, I look at you and say, you stole from me. I know exactly how much you stole. I know what you were wearing when you did it. I know what day of the week it was. I know what I could smell in the air. I remember the exact time signature. It was at 4.52 p.m. and 38, 39, 40 seconds. How dare you? I know what you stole. And from now on, you are a thief in my mind. Watch your girl. She's a thief. We're rational. Here's your problem. When someone sins against you, your problem is that you're bringing math to a grace fight. And here's the problem with bringing math. Everyone looking this way. There is nothing on paper when someone sins against you that says you should forgive them. Why then, Ricky, do we need to turn it around? Because big boy, don't you know that when Jesus decided as to whether or not he was going to save you, he could not have looked at what's on paper Because everything on paper says, send homeboy screeching into death, hell, and the grave. If Jesus would have brought math to this fight, I'd be in hell right now. But my gospel, hallelujah, is that he did not bring math. He only brought the blood. And the blood of Jesus says, grace shall be applied to him. So now he says, hey, Christian folk, you're called to be like me. So don't bring math. Bring grace. And grace says anyone can be forgiven. Y'all smelling what I'm stepping in so far? It's this idea that forgiveness has to work like a child. Now, why? Because children just move on. Children just move on. Children get grieved, but then they just move on. They forgive you, and they keep on moving. Um, any of you parents got kids that are in, still in the car seat season by a show of hands? What about you other parents? Can you remember the car seat days, right? Now, can all of us agree that car seats are used for our sanctification, but are instruments of Satan used to thwart us? Car seats are of the devil, right? Like 19 buckles and 27 straps. You feel like you're putting your kid in a straight jacket. You know what I'm saying? I remember this one morning. We're busy. I'm late for work, and my oldest, Cam, is late for school. Uh, they, they don't want cereal. They want Pop-Tarts. You know, they don't want to eat their fruit. They want to have uh, some candy bars. It's one of those kind of mornings. I'm just going crazy, right? And so I'm finally like pulling him out of house so we can finally get in the car, and I try to get him into this car seat. All of a sudden, a squirrel runs from underneath the car, and my son goes, squirrel, and he runs after the squirrel. And so the scene is one of Cam running after the squirrel, and I'm running after Cam, and I'm yelling at both of them saying, come back here. You uncircumcised Philistines. (laughs) So I'm hot and bothered. I'm pulling him, kicking and screaming into the car. I'm getting all 19 straps and all 27 buckles. And parents, you know what I'm about to say? I put one buckle in and I pinched that little boy's thigh. (laughs) Has your soul ever paused? (laughs) 
You know how little kids are when they get hurt, right? There's no sound, right, for like five minutes. I peached him and he went like this. You know, he's just screaming. <laughs> and Jenkins' men are pretty dramatic, so I start crying. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he's going, like, Daddy, you peach me. I'm so sorry. It's just a mess. It was just going crazy. And I finally get him calmed down just a little bit. I'm so sorry. And I finally get him to see. And I'm just driving along to school. And I just think to myself, I'm the worst parent in the world. <laughs> Y'all, not 30 seconds later, all of a sudden, I hear this nut laughing. I look in the rearview mirror, and this is the picture. It's one of Cam saying, <laughs> Dad, we almost caught that squirrel. <laughs> like, what? Like 30 seconds ago, you almost died. What? <laughs> Children just naturally move on. Pray for Jesus to give you a child's heart. But another thing I want you to see real quickly is how the text kind of shows us the difference between how we do it and the way the gospel wants us to. shows us the difference, but I don't know how to recover. It's, it, it shows you the difference between religious forgiveness and gospel forgiveness, right? Now, um, Peter, I think, is illustrating how grown-ups do forgiveness, right? It just shows us the difference between a religious approach and a gospel approach, right? So, now, this is what you need to feel in Matthew 18. Throughout this conversation, Jesus is just destroying the paradigm for how the disciples understood religiosity. Like, he's destroying it. He's turning everything they thought was conventional wisdom on its ear, and he's giving them a, a, an entire new paradigm. And so this is what's going on in the heart of the disciples. The disciples are starting to recognize that, okay, apparently the gospel calls me to go further than what the rabbinical wisdom has, has taught me, right? So, like, you've heard it say, go one mile. I say, go an extra mile, right? Uh, you turn another chick, all this kind of stuff. He, you could just feel Peter in the background doing the computational math of the gospel, and his deduction is this. The gospel compels me to go further, okay? So, he, he's listening to this thing about forgiveness. He says, how, how many times do I forgive, you know? Should I do it seven times? And Jesus says, no, seven times. You know, he's just taking it farther. So, you need to know that as Jesus is talking to him about forgiveness, he's rationalizing, apparently the gospel wants me to go further. So, what you need to know is that Peter, when he said, should I forgive him seven times, you need to know that this was uber impressive. You need to feel that in the text. You need to know that the second Peter said seven times, that the rest of the disciples were like, ah, Peter did it again. <laughs> ah, he's always coming up with the right stuff. Ah, ah, ah. They are jealous that they didn't come up with this. Why? Rabbinical wisdom had taught that three is the number of perfection. And so if you want to be perfect, forgive upwards of three times. Peter's saying the gospel caused me to go further, though. So three has been good enough. Huh, three is the number of perfection. Ah, but seven. Seven is the number of completion. God, God built the world in seven days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Guys, watch this. Watch this. <laughs> 
Jesus, how many times should I forgive? How about seven times? And Jesus blows their mind when he says, I don't, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And some of your Bibles are 70 times seven. That's 490. In other words, Jesus is saying, never limit forgiveness. Now, this is a big deal because Peter is really not asking how many times he should forgive, is he? He's really asking, when do I get to check out of this relationship? Now say, amen. Amen. That's religiosity because religion says perform and you'll be accepted. So now he's putting a religious construct in his relationship saying, you only get to be my friend. You only get to be graced by me. You only get to be loved by me if you perform. That's the problem with that because Jesus never said you got to perform for me to love you. In fact, Jesus says, you don't perform. You're terrible at performance, but I'm going to love you anyway because I'm going to give you grace. So this is what it's teaching us. This is what I want you to hear. Concerning forgiveness, the gospel doesn't compel me to just go further. The gospel compels me to never stop forgiving. What's Peter's problem? He's not applying to others the same math God applied to him. So let me come to your neighborhood. Let me kick into your front door. Let me move you out of your lazy boy chair. Let me grab your remote control, start flipping channels on your TV. Let me start sipping up your red Kool-Aid and eating your fire Cheetos and say this to you. God's forgiveness in your life has had no limits. And I'm a witness that if God stopped forgiving me at seven times, I would start melting right now like the wicked witch of the West. Can I go further? If God stopped forgiving me at a thousand times, I would disappear like the Lakers last season. (laughs) Too soon? Too soon? Too close? If God stopped forgiving you and I at 10,000 times, all of Mount Hermon would explode. But the good news of the gospel is that God's forgiveness has no limits. And now he calls his children to show others the same grace. Let me look at some Bible here. Nehemiah says, he is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Isaiah said, of God, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. All I want you to hear here is that the gospel does not call you to show math. It calls you to show grace and forgive. Now, let me put a little qualifier here. I'm not saying that you have to forgive and do relationship with someone who continually takes advantage of you. Okay. Now, unless you're married, you got to figure that out. God's called you to a commitment, so don't, don't go there, okay? Ricky said we can get divorced. I didn't say that, right? Okay? I'm saying within the navigation of regular relationships, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean you have to do life with a person who habitually takes advantage of you, but it does call you to release them and forgive that debt in your heart. Amen? Now, so you got to forgive like a child, religious forgiveness versus gospel forgiveness. Let me close on this thought. Uh, here's how we apply this, guys. The Bible teaches that you've been forgiven much, so you're now called to forgive much. I'm going to say that again. You've been forgiven much, so the gospel calls you to forgive much. One more time. You have been forgiven much, so the gospel calls you to forgive much. And here's my point that I'm trying to get to help you actualize this. This is not in your power. This is in God's power. But you can start to actualize God's power when you first, in the case of sin against you, realize first and foremost how much you've been forgiven. 
And that helps you have a standpoint and framework from which to forgive others. So C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Concerning forgiveness, the way I forgive is not based on what I think should be done. (laughs) The way I forgive is based on what God has done for me. Forgiveness can't work if it's based on what you think because you think rationally and you think with justice and God thinks with grace, okay? So that's the idea of the parable. Let me just kind of bring some some, some substance to this and then we can get out of here, okay? Jesus tells a story about a great king, mighty king, rich king, super king, has these servants, Decides he's going to settle all of his accounts, right? He's going to balance the books. And the Bible says that he goes to this one servant who owed him 10,000 talents. He'd stop right there. Now, you need to know, as soon as Jesus said 10,000 talents, the disciples would have said, what? Like, what? Like, this is, this is not even exorbitant. This is an astronomical figure. Like, we don't know if it's gold, we don't know if it's copper, we don't know if it's silver, we don't know. But what you need to know is that no one had ever seen half of a talent, let alone 10,000 talents. In fact, the closest cultural equivalent in our language is the word zillions. Translation, this number doesn't exist. And the Bible says is that the king was owed this much. What's the lesson? Jesus is saying, when it comes to your account against God, your sin against God... Looks like 10,000 talents. Translation, it is unfathomable how much we have broken God's heart for our sin. It It is impossible for us to measure. It is impossible for us to weigh. So when you think about this servant, the idea is that that is us. But verse 27, you ought to memorize this verse. You ought to underline verse 27. You ought to rip it out the Bible and paste it to your forehead because it's the gospel. Because the Bible says, even though he owed what he could never repay, the Bible says the king, out of pity, released him and forgave the debt. Translation, that's what Jesus did for you. I don't get it either, but that's the good news, that I've got this zillion-dollar debt. But out of pity, (laughs) he moves towards us and not away from us, and he released us, and he forgave our debt. Now, here's the problem. We don't act like that with other people. So homeboy gets hooked up, 10,000 talents. The king just wipes the slate clean, right? Then the same dude goes out to another fellow servant for 100 denarii and starts choking that dude like he didn't just get the hookup from the king himself. That's us when we don't forgive. That's what the Bible is saying it looks like. The Bible is teaching that when you move in unforgiveness towards your brother, you forget about all the forgiveness that God has given you. It's a lesson for us. It exposes a disconnect because the idea is that in our relationships, we're not just supposed to look horizontally with respect to what they've done to us. We're also to explore this vertically with respect to what we've done against God. And what the Bible here is teaching is that my sin goes way taller than does his sin go horizontally against me. So the idea that I'm going to give forgiveness, I can't do it just based on what's happening here with this person. I've got to do it based on what happened with me and that person. And he forgave me of my sin. Let's close by saying this. Here it is. 
um, scholars say that 100 denarii was plausibly enough for one person to live off of for three months. 10,000 talents was plausibly enough for one person to live off on for 200,000 years. The lesson is that what has happened against you is nothing compared to what's happened against God. So my application for tonight is this, forgive. Everyone looking this way, it ain't worth it. Forgive. I know they were wrong. I know it wasn't right. I know they're not worth it. Forgive. I say in gentleness, you weren't worth it either. But he forgave you. Can I go a little further, even though you don't know me? Life is too precious for you to bear the burden of the weight of unforgiveness. It's already hard enough. Don't add the crippling blow of bitterness to your livelihood. See, unforgiveness is a problem because it's like a giant weight that you think no one sees and you think you've kind of gotten away with it, but here's the problem. You've got a boulder on your shoulders. It's going to affect the way you walk. It's going to affect the way you talk. It's going to affect the way you interact with others. Jesus says tonight, get rid of that weight. How do I do it? Look at what scholar Tim Keller said. He says, if you want to have a forgiving spirit, if you want to process your soul, if you want to have the inner power to bear injuries without meltdown, what you have to do is make a conscious decision, hear it, to stress the commonalities between you and that person, not the differences. What he's saying is you got to try to remember what you have in common, and sometimes the only thing you have in common is the fact that both of you have sinned against God. But we don't do that, do we? Can I go there now? This is what I do. I don't know what you do. I know you're perfect. I know you're holy. <laughs> this is what I do. When you lie against me, you a liar. That's it. <laughs> like, your name is liar. <laughs> like, I warn people. I don't even tell them your name. I just say, the liar. Watch her. She's a liar. She'll lie when the truth sounds better. Oh, liar, you. But when I lie, I'm not a liar. I'm a complex, multifaceted, multidimensional personality whose brilliance cannot be housed in one term. <laughs> but when you lie, liar. Now we go back to the Sunday school lesson. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What happens is we get locked up in our disputes with one another instead of getting locked up with the grace and the good news of the dispute we had against God that God fixed on Calvary, okay? So let me say this, as I, and I'll close. We are freed. We are freed. And while you're getting free, get all the way free, okay? Don't get locked up in your disputes one with the other. Uh, one, honey, will you help me with this? One scholar said that when you get locked up in a dispute of sin with your fellow man, 
instead of getting locked up with your sin against God and what he's done for you. This scholar said, getting locked up in your disputes of sin with your man is like two ants arguing over which one is taller while both of them are standing in front of Mount Everest. The idea is that what went down between the two of you does not compare to what went down between you and God. Let it go. Let it go. I close with this. Unforgiveness is spiritual prison. With that landlord thing, I'm telling you, Mark, what Satan was trying to do was to get me locked up in spiritual prison. Satan was trying to trick me to preach the gospel every weekend with a niche on my shoulder. That's what he was trying to do. That's what he's trying to do. Unforgiveness, the enemy tries to get you to live out the gospel with a niche on your shoulder. You're not able to experience life to the fullest. Unforgiveness is spiritual prison. Here's the caveat, what you might not have realized. When you refuse to forgive someone, you create an emotional prison for them. What you fail to realize is that you've also created an emotional prison for you. Jesus told me to tell you tonight, come out of jail. My mom died March 29th, 1997. She was the spiritual heavyweight in the house. She's the reason my dad is saved. She's the reason I'm saved. She's the reason my siblings are saved. I think about her every day. And one day I can't wait get to heaven and kiss her on her cheek again. When she died, my family fell apart. My dad just didn't know how to grieve and just for several years became another person. He, he remarried real quick, too quick, and it tore our family apart. And my dad fell to the weight of temptation of trying to please his new wife and trying to please his old kids. And so I watched favoritism happen as stepbrothers got new cars and private school and new clothes while my siblings got nothing. And it caused this huge rift. And I tried to talk to my dad, and he just had nothing to do with me. And it tore me apart. Rip me apart. I love him. I respect him. He's a pastor. But then I went through the pain of watching church members get more love than I did. I went through the pain of inviting dad to my church to come and see me preach on special days and him saying he was coming and not show. I went through the pain of April giving birth to our oldest son and not getting a phone call from my dad. I went through it again on our second son when he he was born and I didn't get a call from my dad. I went through the pain of 20 years of inviting him to come to functions and him saying he was going to come and never going to show. And we went through 20 years of estrangement. Literally, I could see myself still 20 years old, 25 years old, 30 years old, years of crying myself to sleep. 
but the Bible says that he hears your prayers. This past year has been the greatest year of my life. It was January, and we were getting ready for a big event at church. And, of course, like clockwork, I invite my grandparents, and I invite my dad and my stepmom. And, of course, dad says he's coming, and, of course, I know dad's not. Three months pass, and we're getting ready for the big day, and I'm getting ready to pick up grandparents from the airport. And I'm running in the car, and I uh, check my messages, and it's my dad saying, hey, son, we're flying in at 10 o'clock in the morning hoping you can pick us up. Me and April scurry to get the house ready. And I pick up my daddy. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he says something to this effect. Ricky, would you rather be right or would you rather have a dad? Enough years have passed where I was finally able to say I'd rather have a dad. And so my daddy came to see me. And he came to my church to see all these people. And he witnessed that even in 20 years of division, it couldn't stop the seeds that he had planted in me. And I guess it was something through that moment that healed it. We still hadn't talked about it. We still hadn't, you know, walked through the ins and outs. We hadn't sat down with a therapist or Jesus just took it away. And that Monday, I said, Daddy, would you play golf with me? Which is funny because I can't golf at all. (laughs) Which is even more funny because he can't golf either. (laughs) And we went out to the Andalusia golf course. And we played 18 of the most miserable holes ever. We took a picture on the 18th. Fast forward about six months. Dad shoots me a text about every couple of weeks or so now to say, son, I love you. I'm praying for you. Dad will call me now and say, bud, I was praying for you this morning and Jesus just told me to encourage you. Instead of me asking dad to come, he's now saying, hey, What's September look like? Ricky, what's your point? Some of you have been in that situation for 20 years like me. But he can turn it around. What I want to do now is pray for you. And this is my plea. Would you like to come out of jail? Some of you need to forgive a child. Some of you need to forgive a spouse. Some of you need to forgive an ex. Some of you need to forgive somebody who's not even here anymore. Some of you need to forgive a church. Some of you need to forgive yourself. I say this as I close. The blood of Jesus has washed away all sin. And because of Christ's victory, you can walk in victory and forgiveness. And if you heard nothing else, just hear this. 
Jesus wants you to live your life full speed, not with a boulder on your back. So while you're getting free, get all the way free. We're going to close with prayer, and then Jeremy's going to come and give us some direction. But back in the old days when we had church, we didn't care about letting the whole assembly know that it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And I figure since we're way up on this mountain, we may as well do it right. And so wherever you, you are, you can stay there. But if you're saying, Jesus, break that chain of unforgiveness in my life, I just want to pray for you as we close. If that's you, Would you just slip your hand in the air and say, pray for me, church. Pray for me to forgive. Pray for me to come out of jail. Pray for me to let it go. Put your hands down. Let's pray. Father, not for show, but for freedom, we pray this prayer. God, break the chains of unforgiveness in our lives. Jesus, I know the pain is great. Jesus, I know that what they did against us is wrong. Jesus, I know what happened never should have happened. And we lament that. But God, if you forgave me of sin because of your resurrection and your power and my trust and my faith in you, I can bestow that forgiveness on others. So Holy Spirit, do what only now you can do. And get your people out of jail. And get the people we've put in jail out of jail. Jesus, break the chains of bitterness and unforgiveness and the way we've held on to that thing for the illusion of control that it brought us. But we now realize, Lord God, that the only sense of true security and safety is to be squarely in the will of God. So wash us and cleanse us now from this burden and from this weight. And help us to recognize that we've been forgiven much and you call us to forgive much. Lord, give us now, let it go power that we might move forward in what you have for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name.